0: Uh, hello and welcome uh, to the last event of this semester's Beato Fra Angelico Fine Arts Series. Uh, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to say a little bit about his father. Because as a young man in early graduate school, I discovered the fictional works of Dr. Ralph McInerney. Uh, this was uh, at a time when I, though baptized and raised Catholic, was coming to a greater appreciation of the intellectual aspects of the faith something of which, though I had had 12 years of Catholic schooling, I was quite ignorant of at the time. To encounter nuggets of philosophical and theological reflection winsomely tossed off in the form of mystery stories was quite a delight. Um, I shall never forget those hours spent in the main library of Michigan State University, reading such Father Dowling mysteries as Rest in Pieces, Bishop as Pawn, The Basket Case, and A Loss of Patience. P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S. While other students on those Friday and Saturday nights were off carousing or doing God knows what else, I was able to enjoy and develop, couched in a simple aesthetic form, that of the crime mystery story, a greater appreciation of the Catholic intellectual life. However, tonight we will get from his son a reflection, a philosophical reflection upon aesthetic matters rather than a reflection on philosophical matters in an aesthetic form. Um, Either way, um, I am quite happy to introduce to you uh, Dr. Dana McNerney.
1: Margaret, are you grieving over golden grove unleaving? Leaves, like the things of man, you, with your fresh thoughts, care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows bolder, it will take in such sights colder, by and by. Nor spare a sigh. The wounds of wander leave me alive, and yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter child, the name, sorrow's screams are the same. Mouth had no, nor mind expressed and what heart heard. Ghosts. entitled Spring and Fall to a Young Child, written by Gerard Manley Hopkins. I should say father Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a Jesuit priest, 1844 to 1889 for keeping score at home. Um, None of his poetry, I think none of his poetry, was published in his lifetime. It was all published Posthumously. So that poem, Spring and Fall, was written in 1880 and it wasn't published until 1910. So we kind of think of uh, Hopkins as a 20th century poet that he was, he was writing in the 19th century. It's a haunting, even chilling, melancholy poem uh, about a young girl in autumn. Margaret, we're going to return to Margaret uh, in a little bit. But now I want to go back in time from 1880 to the year 1818 and the publication of the young Mary Shelley's gothic novel, Frankenstein. And I want to read you just a bit of the climactic scene. I'm sure you know the basic story. Dr. Victor Frankenstein creates a creature. That creature turns on him, eventually begs Dr. Frankenstein to make him a mate. Frankenstein begins, and he scraps the project. The creature hunts him down, and then finally, sorry, spoiler warning, on Victor Frankenstein's wedding night, he kills Frankenstein's bride, Elizabeth. Lavenza. Elizabeth in the story is an image of beauty, truth, goodness. She is everything that is good, and it is it is absolutely imperative to the understanding of the novel that Frankenstein shuts her out of his life during the whole episode of creating the creature and, and all the horrible. They followed. But eventually they marry, and the disaster unfolds. But uh, just listen to these lines from that by magic scene. I rushed towards her and embraced her with ardor, but the deathly languor and coldness of the limbs told me that what I now held in my arms had ceased to be the Elizabeth whom I had loved and cherished. The murderous mark of the fiend's grasp was on her neck and the breath had ceased to issue from her lips. While I still hung over her in the agony of despair, I happened to look up. The windows of the room had before been darkened, and I felt a kind of panic on seeing the pale yellow light of the moon illuminate the chamber. The shutters had been thrown back, and with a sensation of horror not to be described, I saw at the open window a figure, the most hideous and abhorred, a grin was on the face of the monster. He seemed to jeer as with his fiendish finger he pointed towards the corpse of my wife. I want to take this image from Frankenstein as a metaphor for our current situation in the world. We have three characters. We have Victor Frankenstein. We have Creature and we have a list of events. Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein stands for all of us in the modern world, at least those of us who are in thrall to modern technology and the progress that is promised by it. Right? The creature stands for the technology itself, what we make. Creature is an artificially made technology. And Elizabeth, once again, she stands for everything good, everything true, everything beautiful. So what do we see in this image? We see the product of man's hands, his own technology, coming to hunt him down, causing him great anxiety and horror and ultimately coming to destroy everything that he loves. Notice the creature, in order to punish the creator most of all, goes for that in his life which is most beautiful. So the product of our own hands comes back to bite us, as it were, comes back to destroy all that is beautiful in our Again, that is what I want to present to you tonight as a metaphor for our age, as a metaphor for what causes so much anxiety in our age. Now, you know I'm not standing before you tonight as a clinician, I'm not, I'm not giving you a clinician's diagnosis of the anxiety that, of our age or that any one person is experiencing. I am competent to give you a cultural diagnosis, and that's what I'm doing now, right? Why, as a culture, we are experiencing such anxiety. All right, let's fast forward. October 16, 1978. Non abiate paura. The newly elected St. John Paul II addresses the crowds in St. Peter's Square. And he tells them, in the Italian, word, do not be afraid. Right. That, was a, that was a motif of John Paul II's pontificate. It's a motif of the Gospels. Christ so constantly saying, do not be afraid. And we should ask, what a strange way to begin a pontificate. Do not be afraid. Right? What are we afraid of? What's really interesting is that John Paul II tells us flat out in his very first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, right? The Redeemer of Man. It was published the next spring, March 4, 1979. And if you go to section 15 of Redemptor Hominis, you'll find the subtitle, What Modern Man is Afraid of, right? He I'll tell you, right? And he tells us. And I want to read you a little bit in section The man of today seems ever to be under threat from what he produces. That is to say, from the result of the work of his hands, and even more so, of the work of his intellect and the tendencies of his will. All too soon, and often in an unforeseeable way, what this manifold activity of man yields is not only subjected to alienation in the sense that it is simply taken away from the person who produces it, but rather it turns against man himself, at least in part, through the indirect consequences of its effects returning on himself. It is or can be directed against him. This seems to make up the main chapter of the drama of present-day human existence in its broadest and universal dimension. Man, therefore, lives increasingly in fear, anxiety. He is afraid that what he produces, not all of it, of course, or even most of it, but part of it, and precisely that part that contains a special share of his genius and initiative, can radically turn against himself. He is afraid that it can become the means and instrument for an unimaginable self-destruction. It's like he just finished reading Frankenstein right before he wrote the encyclical, right? But that's the sort of dynamic he has in mind, the work of our own hands coming back to haunt us. And I want to zero in, especially tonight, on, on technology as the source of our anxiety in so many ways. I'm sure that when John Paul II wrote that encyclical, he was thinking of uh, the dangers of nuclear technology. I'm sure he was thinking, but I know he was thinking because he says as much of the despoilation of the environment. I'm sure he had in the back of his mind other technologies such as those involved in contraception, abortion, euthanasia, right? I want us to think of all those things, sure. But I also want us to think of technologies a little closer to home, perhaps, a little closer to our everyday lives that are also threats to us. And things that we might not even think of as threats. Some of my students may have heard me talk about this. The design of our neighborhoods. That's technology, right? How we design our neighborhoods. In some sense, maybe not threatens us with our lives, but in many ways it threatens us with our well-beings. I mean, think about it. Our homes are designed to be typically pretty far away from where we work, which is often typically fairly far away from where we worship, which is typically fairly far away from where we recreate and have leisure with others. So our lives are not integrated and we tend to become very insular, especially in our suburban environments here in the U.S. I always, make, I, I always tell this story. I, I had a neighbor until very recently who whenever I was pulling out of my driveway or pulling into my driveway, he just could not even give the slightest way it was just too much for him to kind of break out of the insularity of the modern subworld just to kind of go like that and finally I stopped trying right because it's kind of ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know we just become two little monads you know these two little enclosed atomistic things in our in our homes Neighborhood. Perhaps something even a little more closer to home, as it were. This little gadget. And especially the social media applications that are on it. Has anybody seen the new Netflix documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma? Has anybody seen it? I have not seen it either um, because my wife and I gave up our net. I'm not saying to brag, it's just another effective technology, my wife and I gave up Netflix because of a film that uh, they were touting which to us seemed like child pornography, so we said, enough, goodbye Netflix. So I haven't seen this film, I hope to run it maybe through some other platform, but it was the, certainly the most popular documentary, if not the most popular film in the last few months on Netflix. And it's about the behind the scenes manipulation by tech companies, especially social media tech companies in Silicon Valley, and how they're manipulating us. We're kind of maybe sort of aware of that. We're sort of concerned about our privacy, maybe. But it goes far, far, far deeper than that. Much more under threat even than our privacy is our attention. You know, that's. That's what's for sale. That's what these tech companies are offering to their advertisers. They're offering your attention. That's how they make their money. They, they convince their advertisers, we can keep them on the platform. Right? We will use every trick in the book to keep them from logging off this app and going over to YouTube or some other app. Right? Hey, we'll invent this great thing the retweet, right? That'll keep them on the platform, why? Because after they tweet, they'll hang around to see if anybody, re- maybe a celebrity will retweet. It's kind of fame-mongering, right? It's, it's playing upon some of our kind of basis instincts to, to, to be famous, oh my God. This is kind of a Frankenstein dynamic. No one's getting killed. Though there are effects of the role that Facebook has played in, in uh, Myanmar and deaths that have actually occurred by that, but well, we can talk about that story later. But typically, no one's getting killed by using social media, but our attention is being divided, right? We're grasping after fame. I also recommend to you, you may have heard of Joe Rogan's podcast, few episodes back, we had an interview with the maker, one of the makers of this documentary, The Social Dilemma, a young, a young man named Tristan Harris. It's a fascinating interview. I've been listening to it this weekend. You can watch it uh, on YouTube, uh, or you can listen to it as a podcast. It's long, it's about two hours long. The first hour is the neediest. Um, probably all, that's the most essential part. Um, but it'll give you the content of the of the documentary, even if you can't see the documentary itself. So I would recommend that to you. And one thing that this Tristan Harris says in the in the interview is that he uses this this chilling metaphor. He says that when it comes to social media, we're living in a body that's consuming itself. Right. We've made something again, like. Frankenstein made the creature. And it's coming back upon us. Indeed, it's consuming us. That is, it's consuming our health. It's consuming our mental health. It's consuming our children's health. It's consuming the health of our democracy. It's consuming our spiritual health. We've made something that has come back to kill us. So I'm suggesting this is a key cause, if not the key cause, of our age of anxiety. So isn't it in the two towers that the orth, Gothmog, asserts the age of men is over. The age of the orc has come. So do we live in the age of the orc? We've built this, technopoly that is consuming us, like Frankenstein's creature. What's the remedy? What can we do? Well, again, I think John Paul II gives us a hint in that same encyclical Redemptor Homeness. Go to the next numbered section, 16. John Paul II exhorts us we'll get this Latin phrase on the board. In order to combat our fears, John Paul II exhorts us to recapture our munus reale, which we can translate as our kingly function, our kingly function or our kingly the kingship that we participate in through Christ's kingship, we have to live as kings. John Paul II says. That's like, okay, how's that going to help us with technology? I go around as a king. Well, think about what a king does. A king has dominion. A king exercises lordship. The king exercises lordship over the land and over the work of his and his people's hands, right? Specifically, John Paul II says, when we exercise our munus regale, our kingly office, we put ethics over technology, we put the person over things, and we put the spirit over matter. When the world is topsy-turvy, you have to put it right side up again. <laughs> Ethics over technology. Persons, people over things. Spirit over matter. Exercising that in your life is to exercise your kingdom. Speaking of kings. Third part of J.R.R. Tolkien's great novel, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, I want to read you Just a few lines from the coronation, or just after the coronation of Aragorn. I won't set context, I'm going to assume you know the basic story. So he's been crowned. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time tall as the sea kings of old he stood above all that were near ancient of days he seemed and yet in the flower of manhood and wisdom sat upon his brow and strength and healing were in his hands and a light was about him and he was not on social media <laughs> oh, no, but this, is, this is the heart of it in his time the city was made more fair than it had ever been even in the days of its first glory and it was filled with trees fountains and its gates were wrought with mithril and steel and its streets were paved with white marble and the folk of the mountain labored in it and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women, and the laughter of children, and they said hello to each other when they came home from work. <laughs> and no window was blind. Look at that. That's the image I wanted. No window was blind, nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. Right? It's an image perfect justice, perfect harmony, nature flourishing, love and laughter and poetry and tradition. This is what comes about when we exercise as human beings our monus regale. Right? Because we are all kings. All of us are kings as we participate in Christ's kingship. That's is the root of the remedy of overcoming the age of anxiety. But let's get a little more specific about what it means to live out this kingly office. And that brings us back to Margaret, with whom we began with Hopkins. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Now, maybe you had this experience when I started speaking you realize oh, he's just like Oh thank goodness, I thought I was gonna talk about philosophy. <laughs> 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 but perhaps you felt like a, just a little bit of um, relief really? or or like anticipation. It's like oh it's, it's clear the way. We're not in the world of whatever assignments you have due tomorrow, and some of you have some. That world is put aside. This is a this is a different space. This is a different environment that he's creating. Okay, maybe you didn't feel it with the Hopkins poem, but then I picked up Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This will delay the philosophy for a little while at least. <laughs> And you think, oh, I can relax. It's a story. Sunday night. If only I had my jammies on. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Right? So we feel that, you know, when the poetry comes in, when the stories come in, it's a it's a it's a space of play. Or if you didn't feel it with Mary Shelley. <laughs> have you no hearts <laughs> It's a space of play that art opens up for us and so I'm suggesting that our love our appreciation of art opens up a way for us to exercise our kingly Joseph Pieper, who I talk a a lot about in my courses. wrote a very famous book I hope you've read. If not, maybe you'll read it me one day. Leisure the Basis of Culture. Leisure the Basis of Culture. It was based on a set of lectures that were given in 1947, right after World War II, in Germany. Joseph Pieper was a German, primistic professor of philosophy. And look, what? We're two years after the end of World War II. Germany's been decimated. I mean, physically, economically, morally. It's time for reconstruction. So here comes Joseph Pieper, the philosopher, and his message is what we need? Leisure. Everybody's ready to get back to work to rebuild German society. And Pieper's saying, we have to realize there's something more important than work. It's leisure. So what did Pieper mean by leisure? Not quite what has just popped into your mind. Not that image of somebody in a hammock on a summer's day with the jug of, of lemonade right here, you know, swinging in the hammock, dozing, drinking the le- Leisure. That's not bad. Don't get me wrong. But his notion of leisure, it, it's, it's richer than that. Leisure is that which transcends the workaday. So it takes us out of the nine-to-five. It takes us out of the world that we're in, the world of assignments, the world of picking up your dry cleaning, the world of doing your laundry, the world of doing the dishes, the world of needing to get a job. See, That world in which we have to keep ourselves alive, there's something higher than that, Beaver wants to exhort us to keep in mind. It's that space of play, that space of leisure. That is where culture is born. And again, it's not just the weekend, it's not just not working. Leisure is richer than that. So so what is it? Essentially for people, what leisure is, it's a loving reception of the goodness, the truth, the beauty in reality. It's just taking reality in. You might say contemplatively, intuitively. Heber wants to make this distinction. It's really important here. I'll use the Latin terms he takes from St. Thomas. Our mind essentially has two ways of acting. One way is what is called, in Latin, ratio. And this is the one we're most familiar with. This is the mind at work. This is your mind writing a paper. This is your mind studying for the test. This is your mind filling out the application for the job. This is the mind creating technology. This is the mind doing, working. And all that is beautiful. It's not like it's evil. But again, what Pieper wants to say is, there's another act of the mind. And it's called intellectus, which again is this loving receptivity of reality. It's a receiving. You're not doing anything. You're not working. You're not striving. You're not overachieving. You're not patting your resume. You're not creating a new app. You're not making money. You're not picking up your dry cleaning. You're passive. Proactivity is a beautiful thing. Pieper wants to say, passivity, rightly understood, is even more beautiful. This activity of the mind, he reminds us, is our participation in the angelic mode of knowing. The angelic mind, it doesn't work. Angels minds don't have to figure things out. They don't do logic problems. They don't have to work step by step and create things and do things, no. They take in, face to face, the divine reality. All I have to do is soak it in. With this active intellect use. We can do that as human beings. Just take in reality. In another of his essays, where's Ms. Cruz? In another of his essays, Ms. Cruz's favorite essay, entitled, Learning How to See Again. Very short, very beautiful little essay. Joseph Paper is talking about intellectus again. And again, he says, we need to learn how to see again. Okay. Uh, what's wrong with my essay? He's not talking about the brute power of eyesight. Right? He's talking about our ability to see all the richness of reality, its truth, its goodness, it's all that was symbolized by Elizabeth Lavenza. And just soak it in, just see it. Now, the physical organ of our seeing is, is, is related to this. More intellectual contemplative seeing, right? It begins with the eye in learning how to see again, but it doesn't end that. It ends in our intellect and it ends in our heart. When we are receiving reality in this contemplative, seeing mode, it's not just pure intellectual, our heart is involved. It's a loving receptivity. That, I want to suggest to you tonight, is the antidote for our age. That is the richest way in in which we can exercise our kingly office. It is the richest way we can have dominion over our own lives, over the Earth, over our own communities and put people over things, spirit over matter, ethics over technology. We do it by remembering how to seek, by just taking in reality. You've been on the beach at sunset, yes? There's nothing to do. There's no problem to solve. There's no homework due the next morning. You just look, right, and you soak it in. My family and I were at the beach this summer, and we're um, on the beach itself, but you know, also had this little kind of condo thing with a balcony with a view of the beach. And what do you do? You just go out there and sit and you look Wave after wave after wave. It never stopped. <laughs> but it never gets old either. You never want to stop looking at it. It's wonderful. And I began to think, you know, I began to see, I think, in people's sense, because I would look at it and think, okay, well, what's, what's causing that? It's like the earth, it's like a big bowl that's being, being chopped. That's cool. I'm in a big bowl that's being chopped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a balcony ten stories up. I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. But that's that's seeing. That's a loving receptivity of what's there. And that's the mode that we need to recapture. Okay, let's relate this a little more tightly to the arts and, and the experience. More than once, since I've been at Christendom, I think a couple of times, students have stopped me here in the library on the quad.
0: Dr. Henry, is beauty
1: objective? Like I mean, I got out of the blue. no preparation. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I think it's a question that presses upon us, right? We love beautiful things. We love our music. We love our favorite books. We love our favorite you hear all, this rum- all these rumblings about beauty being subjective. It's all subjective, and that, that unsettles us, right? It shouldn't unsettle us. Beauty is objective, but it's a little more complicated than that, than just saying just that. Let's go back to St. Thomas again. And to his definition of beauty, you may well know put it in his Latin. St. Thomas defines the beautiful as id quod visum placet. Latin scholars, that which being seen pleases. Sounds like a simple, even simplistic definition. The beautiful is that which being seen. Not just with the physical organ of the eye, but starting there. But seeing in this rich sense of which Joseph Piper Speaks Beauty is that which being seen Pleases us Gives us joy So here is the kernel in truth Of In subjectivism Those who say that beauty is all subjective They're wrong But there's a kernel of truth in it The kernel of truth Is that our Subjective pleasure Our joy Is a huge part of the experience of beauty. The experience of the beautiful is is one in which we are intimately involved with our feelings, and our memories, and our thoughts. Imagine. We see the headlines in tomorrow's paper. Um, New play of Shakespeare found. Hamlet? two. <laughs> now he comes back as a ghost, right? <laughs> all right. All right. That'd be an exciting headline to read, right? And we all get excited, and, and theater companies, they start putting on the play, and we finally go see the play, and it's beautiful. Oh, my God. me right here. Was the play beautiful when it was buried somewhere underneath the streets of london was it beautiful even before anyone experienced it yeah uh, in the sense that it had oh here's some philosophy it had a form enlivening matter it was all there buried underneath the streets of london right but We also feel there's something missing if it's just buried there, right? There's something missing until the play's put on. And there's an audience. And there's an experience. There's pleasure and joy. Again, that's the kernel of of subjectivity. Objectively, there's a form there that makes the language and the plot and the characterization and the themes beautiful. But, again, something seems to be lacking in us until we're there, experiencing it, right? When we experience the beautiful, there is an experience of transcendence. We transcend. Let me explain. Let me begin by, by saying what it is that we transcend. Because to transcend means to go beyond, right? to go to rise above. So what are we rising above? So imagine yourself. You're sitting in the theater, and you're watching Hamlet right? 2. And it's beautiful. You are there as an individual in all of your particular matter, with all of your particular experiences and feelings, and those are all wonderful. And I might be sitting a few rows back and I'm there in all my material particularity, with all my memories and feelings and experiences and thoughts. In so far as that goes, we have not transcended. We're two monads sitting in the theater watching a play, but having a private experience. We have not yet connected because we haven't yet transcended our individuality. And in particular, it's not just our material particularity, but it's what this great Thomistic philosopher, Jacques Maritain, calls, in a book I hope you'll read, maybe with me one day, Art Scholasticism, it's what Jacques Maritain calls our sense needs and sentimental egos. So we're going to be watching the play and kind of be enclosed in our sense needs. We might be hungry. We might be tired. We might be daydreaming. And insofar as we're, we're enwrapped in those sense needs, we're not transcending. Or we could be wrapped up in our sentimental egos. Wow, I wish I, wish I could play so that might be a noble thing. But maybe you're jealous of the, of the Why is she playing the ghost of the feet? shouldn't be. And so we're wrapped in our sentimental egos. And insofar as we are, we're not transcendent. But when we focus in on the form of the play, and that encompasses many things, because a play is a very Again, it encompasses its plot, its characterization, its, its nest of symbols, metaphors. With it's Shakespeare, the beautiful use of rhetoric, all of that comprises the form. He took the English language and he informed it. And when we see that, when we have that loving receptivity of that form of the play, we transcend, we transcend our sense needs and sentimental egos. We transcend our material particularity. We transcend that we grew up in such and such a town. And we come out, as I like to say it in, in my classes, we come out into a kind of intellectual and, and loving piazza. We come out into the open air Join together in that space, the space of beauty. When we do that, once again, we exercise in a beautiful way this Munus Uragale. Okay. Because again, to, to, to put on social media, again, what is it so much but right, just gratifying our sense needs and ghosts? Our lower appetites, often enough our baser appetites, and we get wrapped up in that. But the experience of the beautiful, that seeing, helps us to rise above. Go back to those haunting two last lines of Hopkins' poem. I heard my father recite these two lines to me years ago before I had read Hopkins, before I knew this poem. He was writing a novel. And I asked him what he was writing. And he said, well, I'm going to call it Margaret, are you reading, is the first line in Hopkins' poem. He never, he either changed the title or never finished this novel because he did not publish a novel called Margaret, Greening. but he said that. And I thought, that's a strange title. Yeah, I've never heard of this one, but you know? kind of
0: poetic. Kind of
1: and then he recited, we were in our kitchen, and he recited the last two lines of It is light man was born for, it is Margaret you mourn for." And I heard those and did not understand them. You may not understand them. But the music of the words was haunting. I had this little moment of passive receptivity. There's form in just those two lines, enriching the matter of the language. It's very sonorous music. And I just took it in, and it just stayed with me in my aural, A-U-R-A-L, my aural imagination for years. I didn't go run to the poem to read it, but I had my dad's voice for years. I, I kind of had it memorized in, in, in my memory. Right? At least the last line, it is Margaret, you mourn for. It's like, I don't know what that means, but it's kidding me, <laughs> right? And then one day, I bumped into the poem, and I thought, oh my gosh, it's real! (laughs) (laughs) I remember this! It's Gerard Stanley Hopkins! Right? Now, in the whole poem, but especially in those two lines, what's happening? Even before we understand it, Hopkins is giving us reality. He's giving us a little girl having her first intonations of her mortality. She's looking at the beautiful falling leaves in fall, right? And in a way, she probably doesn't even understand. She's grieving. Margaret, are you grieving over, over Golden Grove? i And in the last lines, we hear that she's really grieving. She's mourning herself. It is Margaret that you mourn. So there are ideas, there's a philosophy in that form. But again, it's embedded in the, in the matter of that language. And we receive it, and we love it, long before we ever understand. I loved those lines for years, before I even read the poem. Once of us understood the poem. Once of tried to memorize the poem. That is a transcendence. It's at least the beginning of a transcendence. And that's the mode we want to live in. We can't live it in every second of every day. We've got to pick up the dry cleaning. We've got to do the dishes. Yeah, I'm sorry, you got to do the
0: that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> But that's the mode we need to be in in order to fight against this age of anxiety, mm-hmm. particularly the technology that's largely driving so let me end, just really briefly with an attempt to make this all even more practical. How to live this poetic existence. Well, first thing I would say is guard your attention with your life. Again, that's what these tech companies want. Right? They, don't, they don't want your private information. They don't want your phone number and your address and your social security so number so much as they want your attention again it was a huge huge development in the career of Facebook when they invented the like button it wasn't there originally it was the same thing with with the retweet it's like I get I get social validation I can be famous they want your attention Quit anti social media. I'll say it out loud. Quit, you will never regret it. You will never regret it. Become a digital minimalist. At the very least, read the book by Cal Newport. He's an IT uh, professor at Georgetown, but he also writes kind of more popular books on studying studying as a college student, but also on productivity and kind of being a worker in our digital age, kind of being an intellectual worker in our digital age. And he has a book called Digital Minimalism, which is fantastic, in which he's advocating. Right? I mean, he's got a PhD in computer science, and he's, he's advocating get on your computer as much as you possibly can. Certainly don't use it for your go-to source every time you have a moment of boredom. Don't give your attention away like that. I'm speaking to myself as well as I'm speaking to you. We need a liberated and quieted attention so that we can be receptive in the way that I've been describing. All truly leisurely activities are good. All forms of play. My students on Friday. Some of you were in the room. I said, "Look forward to the weekend." Yeah, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> <We'll> play. <laughs> right. That's worth the play. We get to play. We don't have to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> we love that as we come out into that piazza where we can receive and be festive. Songs, cinema, poetry—not against all things but not the things that are just trying to exploit your attention. Even apart from the enjoyment of the arts, just give your attention over to reality in silence. Maybe by keeping a journal, certainly prayer, the ultimate loving receptivity of he who is being. Just take in what is good and true about reality. We all love mass-produced entertainment, to one extent or another, right? You know, a little junk food now and again, it's not that bad. I just don't bunch just diet. Go towards the arts that will really challenge you. A lot of pop music. I like popular music as well but so much of the time, again, it's just trying to gratify our sense needs and sentimental egos, right? Almost all the songs are about romantic eros. Either she loves me, yeah, 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 positive, or she dumped me, oh, no, no, no. Right, it's, you know, we go back between those, back and forth between those two polarities, right? And we're just exercising, it's just an ego exercise, right? M- much of the time, maybe not all the time. So we need an art that's gonna challenge us. Memorize poetry. Too many art museums, they're all still closed down, but a lot of them have worked hard to put their collections online. It's not ideal. But it's, it's there, and do what we're doing here, right? The Alto Frangelico Society. Form societies, form groups, reading groups, groups that will go out and just take a walk and appreciate nature. Friendships, comings together that get away from the workaday, get away from doing, get away from striving, striving for grades, and just take in the beautiful. That's the antidote. For our age and anxiety that is going to satisfy our longing thank you all very much for your attention
0: <laughs> especially for coming out
1: on a sunday night that's over and above the call so i i very much appreciate it and would love to take your questions
0: do you think that nature,
1: as you described it, goes against our basic instincts, or do you think it's part of our human nature? To yeah, I think it. It's it's goes to my title. That's what our nature is for. We are hungry for it now more than It doesn't work against our nature. It's the fulfillment of our nature. The problem is in our modern world. We're starving ourselves. That's one metaphor. Or take the more cannibalistic one. We're eating our own organs. Right? We're not nourishing ourselves. We're consuming ourselves. Right? So, no, you want to go toward leisure as you go toward food, nutritious food when you're hungry. That's what you're longing for. That's why everybody says, the play. We get to play. That's not idle. Right? That is more important than the philosophy paper. <laughs> <laughs> is that the norm? Right? It is. It, in at least the philosophy paper as an assignment that you have to turn in in order to get a grade, in order to get three credits, in order to graduate, in order to get a job, that's the work of day. Hamster wheel? The play is much more. Much more. Can
0: you talk a little bit about how, like our experience of beauty um, can form our work lives? This mm-hmm. more the, life.
1: the hope is not, yeah, the hope is not. Um, it's funny, I, I was listening to a great homily today. I like to listen on Sundays to Bishop Barron's homily. And by the way, this is a big theme of Bishop Barron's Ever follow his stuff. He's all about evangelizing culture, first of all, through beauty. And in his um, Meditation Today, which was really on the first reading from today's Sunday Mass, which I think was Proverbs, he got onto the theme of work. So listen to it, it's only about 15 minutes long. And um, he he was taking John Paul II as his chief inspiration. He didn't mention Saint Jose Marescriva, but he might have done. In that he was taking up this theme that work is noble in its own right. Uh, Adam was cultivating the land even before the fall. This was a big point of St. Jose Maria, right? So work is not a penalty for original sin. Right? So work is good. And whenever I teach Peter's leisure the basis of culture some version of this kind of challenge comes up and it should come up because Pieper is not great on this point. Um, he, he, He does more or less say, it's not that work is evil, right? It's just that leisure is higher and leisure is better and that is true. But what he never talks about is the way in which we can take a contemplative attitude into the work itself, right? And That is a very valuable point, and we don't want to let that go either. Some kinds of work facilitate that more than others, um, but the great saints tell us, you know, you can be peeling potatoes and do it with a loving contemplation of reality. Um, Every moment in life presents some opportunity for it. Um, and faith helps a lot <laughs> for it to, to get to that mode I, another great you know St. Therese of Lisieux there's that story she was um, like doing laundry next to another sister and the other sister was working the laundry I don't know if they had an actual like scrubbing board and she kept splashing St. Therese she was like you know not getting knocked back with <laughs> this dirty water and it was irritating and instead of just kind of being irritated at the sister, she took each, each splash as, you know, a little penance, and it gave her joy and meaning to do that. that that's, that's a very rich, faith-filled contemplation of kind of, you know, drudgery, you know, uh, washing clothes by hand. Um, but it's an ideal we can shoot for. Yeah. So is user basically removing
0: ourselves from the physical world in a sense into into like uh, like focus
1: transcendence? Yeah, let me put this. It's not that we're removed from the physical world. We're removed from the world of of um, needing to maintain ourselves in existence, making a living, right? obtaining food shelter and clothing we all have to do it it's all good right but that's one plane of our existence right leisure helps us to transcend that not that we go up up into the atmosphere right but that we we in exercising this and this we tap into the, the deeper aspects of reality—again, truth, beauty, and goodness—or as John Paul puts it, you know, ethics over technology, person over thing, spirit over matter—we tap into that which goes beyond our material particularity, right? Because that's what we're doing. you're doing—you're earning a living because you need food. You got to keep this contraption going, right? So you're just in the world of material particularity, right? But leisure and all the activities associated with it get us into this transcendent realm where we can really communicate with one another and be in community with one another. Uh, Maritan says beautifully in this book, Arts Classroom, we only communicate as human beings through the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness. Until you are encountering truth, beauty, or goodness, we're trapped in our individuality and we're not connecting, right? That's what we transcend. Does that make some sense? It's a lot to chew on. Go ahead, let's When we experience the transcendence, when we hear is it only when we hear it, or does it also have long time, like, does it last year? Yeah. <laughs> well, think of my own example of those, of the two lines that end, uh, can spring and fall. I uh, again hadn't read the poem but at least that haunting last line hung with me literally for years not quite sure how long, certainly more than a decade uh, before I actually encountered the poem so even that much beauty had a, had a significant effect on me so I think in terms of like, length of time a rich experience of beauty can last your lifetime and change your whole life, right? Um, you mentioned the brain. This activity of being more receptive actually changes your brain, right? It rewires the neurons in your brain. Right? The bad news is um, uh, incessant online activity also rewires your brain for the worse. We have all felt this, right? You've been scanning the internet. You're kind of going to the Wikipedia here. Oh, YouTube clip here. You're doing this. And you realize, I cannot read a paragraph anymore. And you can't, right? I was reading a book this afternoon. I hadn't really been online much today at all. I was reading a paragraph in a hard copy book. And I was fighting the temptation to skim, right? My brain has been rewired by online. It's twitchy, right? because it's, it doesn't have the habits anymore of deep reflection in silence. Right? The very thing we need <laughs> to exercise our kingly office, the Internet's taking away from us, largely. Right, So we need to rewire our brains, and we will. Right? You will find your mind becoming more peaceful the more you habituated itself to leisure activity. Memorize a poem, right? Read a novel, listen to rich music. You will feel, you'll feel it, the piece. Maybe not the very first time, but as that habit increases, the brain will rewire. The brain has plasticity. It's not just this inert lump in our heads, right? It, it can grow like a muscle, right? And um, so that's encouraging, that we can rewire ourselves. But to do that, we have to really be abstemious with our online activity, right? And again, I say, I'm preaching to myself, right? And not just wagging a finger at you guys when I say that. It's something we all are challenged with. Uh, it's to put the thing away. Um, hopefully that's the beginning of this. Go ahead. Um, I was just wondering, I think this is a concept of like learning these use to reality, mm-hmm. so for someone who wanted to, let's say, study a language because they've loved it, or to do something very intellectual and academic. Yeah. But it, that is the sense of that. If, oh, absolutely. Because it, it is work, but I'm not Yeah, yeah. Um, It will have both, any intellectual activity will have both of these moments of the mind, right? So let's say you want to learn French for the reasons that you just described. Well, you're going to have to work, right, to get your head around those irregular verbs, right, because they're nasty, right? And you're just going to have to memorize at a certain point. It's not pretty, there's no magic trick work. So the mind will have to engage in ratio a lot, right? But you will get to a point, it may take a while, but you will get to a point where the beauties of the language will begin to reveal themselves. Maybe it'll be kind of early. It may not be until you are reading, you know, Flaubert in the original and you say, oh, this is French. This is why I." I work so hard to learn those irregular verbs and those vocabulary lists. And it's like, French, right? And then you can just lovingly receive it. And that's why we all study language, right? But we, all, we don't always hang with it because there's a lot, you gotta climb the mountain before you get the mountaintop experience. Where do um, fairy tales and imagination come in? Don't ever read them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. with this. Okay. Um, well, you know, Tolkien was asked um, at one point, um, isn't fantasy literature an escape from reality? <laughs> And his, he had a great answer. Oh. Of course it is, right? Have you seen the modern world? I mean, don't, don't you want to escape from it? Um, a little bit of a simple answer, perhaps. Um, but I think he would say, and I think we can say on behalf of fantasy literature, is if it's well done, as if any literature is well done, it is going to um, take us out into that piazza of beauty and truth and goodness. And we're going to to commune with each other through those transcendentals. It doesn't matter if Middle Earth never existed, right? Um, That is a vehicle of the transcend. That's kind of a ship by which we transcend, right? Um, But that doesn't keep us from transcending, necessarily. Fantasy literature, but like any literature, can just cultivate our sense needs and sentimental goes right. If, if if it's only escape, right? If it's only escape, that is, it's just like I just my life so hard. Just take me away to the writer's Rohan, right? Um, I'm not saying that's the worst impulse in the world, but if that's the only thing going on, you're not really transcend, You're just kind of tra- you're just using it. As, as a blanket, right? And that's not what Tolkien or, or any writer wants, right? It, 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 it wants to not a blanket, but sort of this doorway out into the world of the transcendentals. And, you know, a, a, a fantasy story can do that, or a romance can do that. But they can do the opposite as well. Right? Go ahead, Mr. Kelvin. How um, do you. Creating objects of beauty, like writing a book, or composing music, or painting a picture into this distinction of intellectus, ritmatio, and in work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say something similar to, to what I said about learning a language. Let's say if you're going to write a novel, or write a poem, write a piece of music, um, it's not all going to be intellectus, right? Um, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to learn how to craft plots, right? Or create harmony, or um, use rhetoric in a certain way. You're going to have to study and to memorize and, and to sweat as it word. So there's going <laughs> to be a lot of ratio in it. But the whole point of it, the whole point of that work, is to generate in the audience this, this intellectus, this loving receptivity you as the artist will have had that too right that's usually what we refer to when we talk about the inspiration right you're inspired to write the poem you're inspired to write the novel that typically means there's been some experience that you've had of reality that you have taken something in it's provoked your excuse me your loving wonder and you don't want to write about that, right? I don't know, I don't know the backstory of Hopkins' poem. I don't know if he actually talked to a little girl or saw a little girl, you know, in, in an autumn woods one day, or if he just imagined it. But that scene um, struck him, inspired him. That's a moment of intellectus, right? And he wants to share that. With an audience, but he can't do it unless he has craft, right? And that comes with Razia. right? Go ahead, Dr. Salton. <laughs> For money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I actually messed up. So I'm glad to have So again, it's called Spring and Fall to a Young Child, Gerard Mennon-Hartons. Margaret, are you grieving over golden grove, unleaving? Leaves, like the things of man, you, with your fresh thoughts, care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will take in such things Colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of warmwood leaf meal lie. Yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter child the name, sorrow springs the same, nor mouth had. No, nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Thanks for that, I gotta write that. Down. <laughs> <laughs>